Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Today we pick up where we left off last time. If you'll remember, Paul was waiting in Athens, awaiting the arrival of Silas and Timothy. But while he was there, he was overcome by the idolatry of the city. And he was compelled, stirred within himself, he was compelled to speak and to preach about Jesus Christ. He spoke in the synagogue to the Jews and the proselytes there, but he also spoke in the marketplace, the place where the philosophers of the city would gather and would speak. And Paul went there and he spoke to whoever happened to be in that place. He spoke about the one who was alive and then was dead and then rose from the dead. All this happened in the city of Athens, but today we pick up with this text that says they took Paul to the Areopagus. They they took him to this place. It was a court where important matters were heard. And we pointed out last time that as Paul comes into the Areopagus, that he does not come in as a criminal on trial. Rather, he comes there because it was a place for those who were the philosophers, those who were the counselors, those powers that be, the who's who, if you will, in philosophy and religion, they could hear and decide if this message that Paul was preaching was worthy of their time and attention. It strikes me that that is much what we do here today, that you will decide today if this gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of your time and attention. So we'll read this text, but before we do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word and the application of it to our hearts. Triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you now and ask, that we might receive from your gracious and giving hand. Your word instructs us many, many places and in various ways that we are to ask of you that we might receive. And we know, based on the testimony of Scripture, that you are a benevolent God and that it is your will to give good gifts to your people. So we come asking, we believe in accordance to your will, in accordance to your revealed will, that you would sanctify us by the truth of your word through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears of faith that we would hear, that we would, that we would hear and understand your word. We pray that you would convict us of sin, of false belief, of whatever is contrary to your work in us. God, we pray that you plant the seed of the gospel in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls here today. And we pray that you would grant faith and that you would increase faith, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless your word. For the furtherance of the gospel, for the building up of your church, 
hide this preacher behind the cross. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. So Acts 17, we'll begin reading in verse 19 and we'll read through the end of the chapter through verse 34. Hear now the word of God. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know these, what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he hath appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. After being brought before this session, this audience of people, for the purpose that they might hear his teaching, Paul stood to speak. And we note in the first place the readiness of these people, the readiness of these Athenians to hear the gospel message. 
For sure there were many who listened with only an unhealthy curiosity. There were those who did not come with hearts ready to receive the message of Jesus. But at least at some level, there was a willingness to listen. And some were saved by the power of God. Let's look down at the end of the chapter, verse 34, that we just read. Some men joined Paul and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. This man, Dionysius, was a member of the court at the Areopagus. He was an Areopagite, a man of influence and a man of position. And he believed the gospel message that Paul was preaching. And again, we have listed here, named here, this woman, Damaris. And we see once again from Scripture the place of equality and dignity that women have in the kingdom of Christ. And this is in contrast to the rest of the world. These people came to hear Paul. This willingness to hear the preacher is something that we have seen in, in times past in the history of our own country. In, in years past, most people had heard the message of Jesus. Most people were aware of some of the teachings of Christianity. And they were at least not hostile, not openly hostile toward the Bible and the, the church to the gospel and to God. But in more recent days, it has become common to come across people who are unwilling even to listen to the message of the Bible. It's almost in vogue to be anti-Bible, anti-church, and anti-Christ. The Apostle John wrote that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And we certainly know this when we look around and we see our society. But this attitude of Antichrist among the worldlings, it should not discourage us. But Christians, it should drive us to prayer. It should cause us to pray for God's work of regeneration to be done in spite of cultural rejection of Jesus Christ. We should not be discouraged. In Paul's day, as he spoke here at the Areopagus, many, we might even say most, rejected the message that he preached. But those whom God was calling were saved. And this same thing happens today. This same thing happens in our day, in our culture. Cultural resistance to the gospel will not, cannot thwart the saving work of God. Jesus saves was a statement that has been said for decades at least. Jesus still saves. So Paul stood and he spoke. Verse 22 begins 
this summary of what he said. We don't think this is every word that he spoke, but it's a summary of what he said to them there on that day. And, and we begin in verse 22 with these words from Paul. Men of Athens, I observe. Men of Athens, I observe. And we note now in the second place, the observation of the gospel minister. And we'll include here the education of the gospel minister. Paul says, I observe. And it's clear as we read the rest of this summary, the rest of what he said, that he truly did see what was going on. He truly did observe. He was able to start with current events, start where they were, the current state of things, and draw a straight line back to the God of the Bible. Now, if you know me, you know I'll be the first one to admit that I sometimes would prefer to keep my head in the sand. The current state of the world in 2022 is enough that sometimes we could wish we didn't see we could wish that we didn't observe. But we learn here from Paul that a good and accurate assessment of the culture, of the social norms, of the accepted practices and ideas gave him a voice to those people. A voice that was heard. We see his observation. We also see his education. Paul's education is evident as he speaks to these Areopagites and those who were gathered listening. Paul quotes from their history. He refers to their own philosophers. And let me add, these were not Christian philosophers. Paul quotes secular philosophers. Listen, beloved, we must be careful here. We must remember that we're not the Apostle Paul. And we must remember the dangers that come in hearing and learning of secular philosophers. I do not intend to send you down a path to take in the worldly reason and to believe the lies of the world's propaganda. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about knowing and understanding the world's philosophers and accepting everything that is taught there. But what we see here is truth is truth. Truth is truth. And Paul recognized Bits of truth that existed in their own philosophies. And he was able to quote their philosophers and quote their poets in service to the gospel. This is not an easy thing. It takes, it takes knowledge, much knowledge, and it also takes skill. And Paul was very skilled at this. He was skilled at recognizing truth and he used the truth that they knew to bring them to this new truth of Jesus Christ. 
And we know that Paul did this, quoting, quoting secular philosophers, quoting poets. We know that he did this at other times as well. Let me just bring some of those times to your attention. Some of you will know the verse. You'll recognize the verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, bad company corrupts good morals was a quote from a play written by Menander. Some of these names are going to be tough today. Menander. Uh, now, Socrates thought that Menander did not originate this saying, but that he took it from a man named Epimenides. But, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.33 quotes this playwright, uh, and the playwright was from Paul's own region from his he was a local boy for Paul some of you will remember from our Sunday school studies as we've been working through the pastoral epistles and we've come to Titus in our study some of you will remember Titus 1:12, which reads this like this one of themselves a prophet of their own says Cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons King James says, slow bellies. Some of you will remember that quotation that, that Paul quotes from one of their own, a Cretan. And that Cretan was Epimenides, a philosopher, a poet, and he was called a prophet of theirs, a prophet from Crete. And we're going to see that Epimenides was, was sent or came to Athens in order to help Athens, in order to purify Athens. But Titus and Corinthians, Paul quotes from philosophers and poets of their day. Here in our text, again, Paul quotes one of their philosophers and, and a, a songwriter as well. And this, this quotation comes from Epimenides. The words in verse 28 are in quotations. Now, some of you know that I preach from the New American Standard Bible, and I always really pick at you English Standard Version folks. I like to give you a hard time, and that's not going to stop. <laughs> but the ESV got this right, and the New American Standard needs a little correction, not in the language, but in the, in the punctuation, in the quotation. We should see open quotes, for in him we live and move and have our being, or for in him we live and move and exist, close quotes. And even some of your own poets have said, open quote, for we are his children, close quote. So there's two quotations there, the first from Epimenides and the second from a hymn about Zeus. These words were written in Greek literature by Epimenides and a song written, and, and they were written in reference to Zeus. But Paul takes these words that were familiar to those people and he appropriates those words for gospel use. He applies these words from Epimenides to the God of Scripture, the God who he was presenting to them. Now let me say this, I don't recommend this as a common practice. Paul was an apostle and did this and it is now inscripturated for us. But he took those words and he quotes here from one of their 
philosophers, one of their prophets. So we have noted in the second place Paul's observation and his education, his secular education, and the use of these things in ministering the gospel. Thirdly, we observe the gracious restraint of the Apostle Paul that he showed in this address to this pagan audience. Now, as we speak of Paul's restraint, I want to be careful not to say, or, or let me say it this way, I want to be careful to say that Paul did not compromise the truth in order to accommodate these idolaters. He in no way compromised the truth, but he also did not address them with all the force and offense that he could have. Remember, the idolatry of the city was so great. Remember another Epimenides quote, it's easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man. He, he, he's so moved by this, Paul's inner man responds because of the holiness of God. He is stirred, he is provoked. There is something violent happening within him that leads him to speak about and to preach Jesus how many of us stirred in this way would come to Mars Hill and say something like, look, you bunch of godless pagans. You're an offense and you're an abomination. And that would be true. But it also would be the kind of speech that alienated everyone before they heard anything that Paul had to say. And he doesn't come with maximum offense. He does not compromise the truth, but he doesn't come with maximum offense. He shows restraint in how he speaks to them. Verse 22, he speaks, he comments on their piety. I see that you are very religious in all respects. He comments on their piety. The King James translates this, I see that you are too superstitious. And that's, that really doesn't give us the idea. That sounds like a criticism. And this is not necessarily a criticism. It's just an observation. You're very religious in all respects. Very religious is a good translation. Now it's not a criticism, but it's also not a compliment. Because we know that religion without Jesus Christ is just empty and worthless. And in the end, it is truly idolatry. But Paul is going to make this observation. You're very religious. He makes this observation about their piety. And then he's going to make a beeline to the God of the Bible. In verse 23, Paul further describes their piety. You are very religious. Their religiousness is seen by this full array of idols and other objects of worship. This is really a commentary on the inclusive nature of the accepted religion of Athens. The accepted religion of Athens was inclusive. Every god... And every goddess has a place. 
Now we could say that this means that every god and every goddess has a place means no god or goddess was particularly special. There were distinctions, but but in the end, they're one among many. But their their religion, however they referred to it, whatever they called it, was inclusive. And this comment on the inclusivity of the Athenians is not a virtue. It's an indicator of the futility and the foolishness of their whole religious environment. And brothers and sisters, the religion, I, I told you last week that Athens reminds me of an ancient picture of today. And we see in our day the accepted religion is all inclusive. And it still is a reflection of the futility of that religion and the ultimate foolishness of it. In our day, no one in this world can, can say anything bad, anything about a religion that is out of bounds. Buddhists, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, agnostics and atheists. And if you don't think atheism is a religion, we can talk later. All of these religions, everybody's religion is just as good as the next person's religion. The only religion that it is popular to put down is Christianity. And there are reasons for that. First of all, because the world hated Jesus when he walked this earth. And they still hate him today. And another reason that the world hates Christianity is because Christ and Christianity, the God of the Bible, is exclusive. And the exclusivity of Christianity is antithetical. It flies in the face and does not agree with the inclusive religion of the world. That brings us to the fourth point. Paul has commented on their piety, on their religion. And he's commented on their inclusivity. And now, as the fourth point, Paul comes to the exclusivity of the God of Scripture. The exclusivity of the God of Scripture. In spite of their piety, and in the face of their inclusivity, Paul points them to the one true and living God. The one true and living God. And it becomes clear that the God Paul was preaching cannot coexist with the gods and goddesses of Athens. The God of Scripture cannot coexist with the gods of Athens. And brothers and sisters, the God of Scripture cannot coexist with those false gods and false religions of our day. First, let us consider the altar to the unknown God. As we, as we speak of the exclusive nature of the God of Scripture. Now, I thought for many years, this, this reference in verse 23 to the unknown God, I, I thought that this was 
Paul picking an altar that was kind of a catch-all. It would be like if the Athenians had an altar and they inscribed it just in case we left somebody out. Just in case we forgot some God. Uh, and, and I thought that this was Paul coming and saying, hey, you did miss one. Let me tell you about the one you missed. But, but I don't believe that's the case. I think this is more specific. Another thing that I don't believe is the case, but some have supposed that, that this unknown God, this altar to the unknown God was really the unnamed God. Remember the God of the Jews, the God of Scripture, Jehovah, Yahweh, His name was not to be named. And some have supposed that this unknown or unnamed altar here was really an altar to Jehovah. Well, that would make things easy for Paul, but I don't think that's the teaching. I think this is more specific. And we'll remember now the education of Paul and the fact that he knew their history and he knew their philosophers, that Paul had a sort of a, a favoritism for quoting Epimenides in Titus and now here again in Acts. And there's another link, I believe, to Epimenides in this text right here with this altar to the unknown God. I'll try to condense this story and make it short. Maybe not short enough. 500 years before Jesus Christ, that's 500 years B.C. We still use B.C. That's a good thing to use. 500 years before Christ. That was the time that Epimenides lived. And during that time in Athens, there was a great pandemic. Some of this, you might think, that sounds very familiar. There was a great pandemic that hit there in Athens. And many people were sick and many people were dying. And the Athenians offered sacrifices to every god that they knew to try to appease whatever god was causing this plague. But nothing was working. And they were at wit's end to find a solution. They went asking for wisdom at every hand. And someone said, there is a man in Crete. You need to get him here. His name is Epimenides. So they sent for Epimenides. Remember, he came to Athens to purify Athens, to help Athens. And he was the one who would advise them about how to end this sickness and death. Epimenides, he posited that there that they had missed a God in their sacrificing, but this God was unknown to them. And he supposed that this unknown God was good enough to be merciful to them, even in their ignorance, so they should pay homage to Him and offer sacrifice to this unknown God. There are so many things that sound familiar to our day here. But one is we don't know anything about this God. Let's just offer a sacrifice from our ignorance. And I hear the echo of those preachers who say, just worship with whatever light you have within you. We just come to God in complete ignorance. Friends, God has revealed himself in Scripture. He has revealed himself and we are not to worship in ignorance. We're to worship, the Bible tells us, in spirit and in truth. His word is truth. 
So Epimenides was called. He came and he said they should build this altar to the unknown God. And that, by the time Paul comes to the Areopagus, by the time he is there making this speech, that altar to the unknown God has stood for nearly 600 years. A testimony to the powerlessness of all their other gods and a testimony to their own ignorance. And they leave this altar to the unknown God. And Paul now brings all that history that they would have known. He brings all that history to their mind and goes from there to the God of Scripture. Now we don't hear Paul saying here, men of Athens, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not where he starts. Paul doesn't even start with Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. He starts He starts with the doctrine of God. He starts with what we call theology proper. This doctrine of God or theology is something that so many today neglect or outright ignore. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about in the church. If we go to the average church in America and we mention impassibility, simplicity, aseity, eternality, immutability, incomprehensibility, infinity, if we mention holiness, some will say, well, we've heard of those words. Mention that God is most just and terrible in all his judgments. And we might see blank stares from those who attend that church. We might see embarrassment on the face of the clergy that you would even bring up theological terms. Aseity. Because we are just averse to using those kind of, of terms and we're averse to discussing theology. But Paul did not shy away from theology. He dives right into theology and he says, Athenians, you're coming with me. Let's go. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you to follow in your Bibles beginning in verse 24. And we're just going to kind of go rapid fire through these things through this theology that Paul is teaching. Verse 24, look there. God is the creator of everything. That would include all their gods. That would include them. Verse 24, God is the king of heaven and earth. Also verse 24, God is a spirit who cannot be contained in temples. The Bible says the earth cannot contain him. Verse 25, God is ase. Now it doesn't say that in that word, but this is what ase is. It means that God exists in and of himself and he receives nothing from any other source. This is taught by Paul when he says God is not served by human hands. This statement also may speak of the simplicity of God, that he's not composed of parts, that he's not a composition at all. Verse 25, as though he needed anything. God is eternal. He needs nothing. Who has given to him that God owes them? No one. 
Verse 25, God is the source of all life and the sustainer of life. He gives life and breath, the sustainer of life. Verse 26, God rules and reigns sovereignly by his works of providence and his providence has no bounds and his providence does have a purpose, his own purpose. He is working toward the goal of saving the elect. Verse 27 speaks of the God who transcends time and space and all creation, but is imminent toward men. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has condescended at every turn in history from creation all the way through till now. He condescends graciously to deal with men by way of covenant. Verse 28, again we see, God is the source and sustainer of men. Verse 28, by creation we are all His property. And by salvation through redemption and justification, those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior are His by purchase and by adoption. We are His children. Verse 29, theology proper now leads us as creatures to acknowledge God as the one true and living God. Unlike any idol, unlike any false God, unlike any other, there is none beside Him. Verse 30, God has demonstrated patience with mankind. Bringing about in time His redemption plan. Also in verse 30, God commands men, women, boys, and girls of all ages, in all places, throughout all time, to repent of your sin. And this repentance accompanies belief that what God has said in His Word is true. <clears throat> Verse 30, we've got to be careful here, right? Because it says something about God overlooking. Listen, we cannot in any way see this as God overlooking sin like He just lets it slide. I want to overlook it this time. That's a human trait. That is not what God does. God is patient. He is patient. But verse 31 tells us, it clears this up, He has fixed a day of judgment. God is patient. He has fixed the day of judgment. And verse 31 says, God's judgment will be carried out by the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The one who was alive and then was dead and is alive again to live forevermore. Verse 31, God testifies to the divinity of Jesus Christ by raising Him from the dead. This verse also speaks of resurrection. And we see through this that every person will be raised from the dead. Every person. Raised from the dead. Some, some will be raised unto eternal life. And some will be raised unto eternal death and damnation and torment of hell. When Paul finishes up in verse 32, we see this. Some sneered. 
Some were willing to hear more. And some believed. And beloved, that's the question for you today. Will you sneer at this God of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you scoff at the Savior? Will you put the matter off for another day, not knowing if tomorrow will ever come? You're not promised tomorrow. And if tomorrow does come, you're not promised that you'll be in your right mind. <coughs> Don't put it off. I pray that by God's grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you will repent of your sin today. Believing in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and for eternal life. Let's bow and pray. Father, we ask that you would work here today. That you would save lost souls. Just as you did in Athens, we pray that you would take idolaters, idolatrous hearts. And through the blood of Jesus Christ. You would make them into worshiping hearts. That you would take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. God, we pray that you would save sinners. God, we pray that your people would love the teaching about you would love the doctrine of the God whom we serve. We pray that you would work for your glory and for our good. And we ask all this for your kingdom's sake.